we are looking at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And this morning, I want to speak to you about the suffering of Christ. The suffering of Christ. By this I mean the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I know some of you are probably wondering, are we back to doing the Easter series? Well, not quite. Uh, Not to worry, we are not starting a Easter series. We are going through Mark, and today we are in Mark on Mark chapter eight, verse thirty-one to verse thirty-three, and we're going to look at this twice. So this morning we'll be looking at verse thirty-one, and this evening we are looking at verse thirty-two to verse thirty-three. This morning we are looking at the suffering of Christ. This afternoon, this evening we are looking at the cross of Christ. Now, in verse 29, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the King to end all the kings, the King who is going to put everything right. He's just done that. And we looked at that last Sunday evening. But their idea, the disciples' idea of what it means for Jesus to be Christ the King is worlds apart from what Christ himself has in mind. So Christ now explains it to them. Let's read verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he goes on to say, and he said this, Plainly, he says in verse 32. These words of Jesus are the first of three predictions Jesus gives in the book of Mark concerning his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. We might say this is an advanced summary of what will happen to him during Passion Week. So Jesus, aware of what's coming, makes clear now what's going to happen to him. And these words of Jesus, I think, reveals to us three things I want us to see here. They reveal to us three things concerning who Jesus is and his mission in the world. And these are just what I want to look at this morning. The first thing Christ wants us to know here is that Christ is God suffering as one of us. Christ is God suffering as one of us. The key phrase in verse 31 is Son of Man, right? We see it there. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, many of us here are familiar with this expression, Son of Man. What does it mean? Well, I suspect if you, ever, if you attended Sunday school, if you ever found yourself in one of those classes that children have gone to, you would have learned that because Jesus is God and man, the Bible calls him both Son of God and Son of Man. That's by and large what is taught in Sunday school. Now, Jesus is fully God and fully man. But the title Son of Man does not simply mean Jesus is fully human. It doesn't. It actually means he is both God and man, as confusing as that sounds. Okay? It means he's both God and man. We know this because this title, Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel. 
which was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. Daniel, some of you may know, had these amazing apocalyptic vision, extraordinary visions. And one of these visions he had is recorded in Daniel 7, which took place in the year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. And here is what he saw in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to verse 14. We read this. And I saw, verse 13 to 14, Daniel is seeing this vision. And I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heavens, there, was, there came one, like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. Verse 14. And to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and the kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What's going on there in Daniel? Well, what Daniel is looking at, it's a courtroom event in heaven. God, the Ancient of Days, is sitting on his throne in heaven. And then the Son of Man enters heaven. We are told of the clouds of heaven, symbolic for his glory, the dominion, the power, the wonder of heaven. He's riding in to heaven. And as he approaches the Ancient of Days, who rules over all things, he is given all dominion and power and rule to be served and worshipped as God forever and ever. In short, the Son of Man is fully God and fully man. And by Jesus identifying himself as this Son of Man of Daniel, Christ is saying, I am God living among you. Every person born on earth is younger than their mother. That's a fact. Right? (laughs) Except Christ. The history of Christ does not begin inside Mary's virgin womb. Christ has always existed as God the Son in an eternal and perfect Trinitarian union of love with God the Father and God the Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches, that God is one in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And the Son of Man is God the Son, fully God. In Christ, if you like, God has become one of us. Why on earth has God come and put on the dirty rags of human flesh? Why has he done that? Because he's on the mission of suffering. Let's read verse 31 again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, one of the TV shows I used to enjoy watching a few years ago, I don't know if it's still on TV, I don't think it is now, is The Undercover Boss, right? You may remember that program, right? Uh, the, the best, if you remember it, in each episode, the CEO goes undercover as an ordinary employee in her company for a week. She changes her appearance uh, and uh, she takes on a new identity just for a week. She's undercover. And while she's undercover, she gets to know those people who work for her. And it's interesting, one of those problems you see are sometimes even taking on the burden of being an employee. She has to do what everyone does. And she even begins to share in some of the pain. She gets to know some of the people, and she has coffee with them. She understands some of them perhaps are financially struggling. 
She has entered their world, but she hasn't ceased to be the boss. She's just there for a week. We might say God in Christ is the ultimate undercover boss who has entered the world he created as one of us without stopping being God the Son. He has laid aside his glory to walk in your shoes. He has come to share your pains, your tears, not just for a week, but first of all for 33 long years on earth. And of course, even now, he still wears our flesh as it were. And then unlike the undercover boss, God has freely chosen for those 33 years to suffer. And especially during Passion Week, he has chosen to suffer for us. So God is coming into this world knowing full well the depth of aura that awaits him on earth. And even from the beginning of time when Christ is, even when God enters, as you say, as he enters the virgin womb of Mary, as he's born, as he begins to grow, as humanity begins to realize, as he begins to communicate from his divine nature to his human nature what it means to be the Christ, the cross is now ever before him as Christ is growing as a little boy. We might say it's like a perpetual Gethsemane. He is living on earth, even before the cross, knowing full well he's going to die on the cross for us. Not just die on the cross, but be, for those three hours, be separated, so to speak, from his loving, eternal Father. As he takes on us the full punishment of the cross. And this we need to understand, isn't it? This, this truth of God who suffers as one of us is what the Bible teaches, isn't it? That Christ is God suffering as one of us. And this truth, it, it reveals something unique about the God of the Bible which you won't find anywhere else. And it is this. Our God is a God who is near, not far. All of us at one point have asked the question, God, where are you? What's happening to me? Uh, you feel so far. You, you don't seem to understand my pain. Why are you letting this happen? We've all been in situations like that, haven't we? Well, only the true God of the Bible can say to us, I am there suffering with you. I know how it feels to suffer because I have allowed suffering to get to me. You see, all the false gods of this world claim many things about what they can do for us and so forth, right? But only God in Christ comes down and suffers evil with us. Only he knows our pains and tears. That is why he's the only true God. And because he knows our pains and fears, he's the only one you can trust and must trust with whatever pain you're facing in your life. Trust Christ, because Christ is God suffering as one of us. This is the first truth we learn here. The second truth we learn here uh, is not only that Christ is God suffering as one of us, Christ is God suffering by us. By us. Look at verse 31 again there. After Christ declares he has come to suffer, notice he tells us who is going to be responsible for his suffering. Verse 31 continues. 
And he began, says verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Who are these guys? Well, the three groups Jesus mentions here make up the Sanhedrin, the official seat of religious power among the Jews at this time. The elders are actually 70 members of the council. So when we hear the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are made up, they come from those two sects. The scribes are what we might call the legal experts and advisors to the Sanhedrin. They are our, they are the religious civil servants. They are the people we see quoted on television on expert views. They are that kind of thing. The chief priests, well, this is the cabinet, isn't it? They include the current high priest of the Sanhedrin and his predecessors. They have a bit of a house of lords thing going there. As well as their family members, right? Everybody's brought in. You're related to that chief, to the high priest, you're a chief priest yourself, right? And all of them at this time, we need to be aware of this, all of them are Sadducees. That's quite important when we come to later. And so this is important here, isn't it? Because what Christ is saying is that it is not humanity at its worst that will crucify me. He's saying it is humanity at its most wonderful, most religious best. If this planet was being threatened with mass extinction, these are the sort of people we would want to serve and put on a spaceship to Mars. Literally. They are the cream of the crop. The best talent around. They are in the Sanhedrin. These are the people who know the law very well. They have memorized, all of them, the first five books of the law. Jesus is saying these people will crucify him. These people will crucify Christ standing on the highest legal standards and morality. They will actually crucify God believing they are serving God. And of course this is what happened, isn't it? We'll find out when we come to Mark chapter 14 to 16. This is what happened. God in Christ was not knifed by some misguided teenagers as we see in the streets of London. It was not at the hands of deranged jihadists blowing them up, themselves up. No. Jesus was arrested with official warrants. He was tied and executed by the world's envy of jurisprudence. The Jewish Sanhedrin and Roman justice. God in Christ was crucified by the best and brightest, armed with the best legal system at that time in the world. Why is that important? Because the crucified Christ, or rather because Christ is being crucified on our behalf, by all of us. If we were in their place, we would have done the same thing. Because this is the best that humanity had to offer at the time. And indeed, we have done it. We have crucified him. The Bible says in Hebrews 6, verse 6, that we are still crucified. Because in Hebrews 6, verse 6, it says if you are rejecting Christ, you are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. 
So if you have not come to that position of repentance, you are still, of true repentance, you are still crucifying Christ. You see, the the crucifixion of Jesus by the human race shows just how thoroughly blind and evil we are. We put God who created us to death. Peter said, we killed the author of life. You know, sometimes people said to me, if only God would do this for me, then I would do this for him. Or if only God would do something wonderful, then I would finally have faith to believe in him. But you see, the Bible tells us a different story. It says to us, no human being has a desire to run towards God and give him a hug. No matter how much good God shows us, and the Lord Jesus for 33 years showed the world much good. A lot of good. The best good I had ever seen. You see, we're all rebels carrying spiritual guns, shooting God away. When God showed up in the flesh, dressed in human rags, we murdered him. That's our story as a human race. And until you and I accept this guilt of putting Christ to death, until you and I realize we share in this guilt, until you and I realize even in our, our, our natural and active rebellion is still putting him to death, then you cannot benefit from his suffering for you. All roads to God begins here. Accepting that you share in the guilt of the cross. Sanctification, living for God, is about this, accepting that you stand before God as a sinner and that you've already been declared right only through the merit of Christ. You cannot have a relationship with God until you accept you crucified the Son of God. The hymn writer, Horatius Bonner, he's called the Prince of Scottish Hymn Writers, says this, It was I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery of all that shouting multitude. I feel that I am one. In that noisy crowd of rude voices, I recognize my own. Do you recognize your voice in the crowd? That crucified Jesus. Do you see that you have the blood of God on your hands? You have the blood of God who created you and keeps you alive. Do you see that? Well, if you do, then I have some very good news for you. Jesus dies from this verse. Because the final truth we learn in this passage is that Christ is God suffering for us. So the first truth is that Christ is God suffering as one of us. That's important because of the second truth we learn, which is Christ is God suffering by us. We must admit the guilt of the cross before we can benefit from the third truth here, which is Christ is God suffering for us. Why has God come to suffer? The answer to this question is one word in verse 31. And the word is must. Look at verse 31 again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Must suffer. Jesus 
He's not saying I'm being compelled to go to the cross. No, he's not saying that. Rather, Jesus is saying his suffering is necessary because it is what God promised. I have come to do your will, he's saying effectively to his father. You see, in the Old Testament, God promised that he would come and be betrayed, killed, and then rise from the dead. As Jesus just says here, after three days, I'll rise again, he says at the end of verse 31. And that is exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus was betrayed, he was killed, and he rose from the dead. You see, one of the prophets uh, who predicted the suffering of Christ is the prophet Isaiah. He lived 700 years before Christ, just before Daniel. He foretold of Christ being tortured beyond recognition. Turn with me to that passage in Isaiah which we read. So our final reference, Isaiah 52 verse 14. Notice there, Isaiah 52, verse 14, which we read at the start, says this, speaking of Christ to come, as many as were astonished at you, Isaiah 52, 14, as many as were astonished at you, his appearance was, mad, was so mad beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He suffered such brutality that he was beyond recognition. He couldn't even finish carrying the cross on his own. This, Isaiah 53 verse 3 says this. He was despised. Isaiah 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men eyed their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah goes on to predict that Christ would die in a shameful way. Look at verse 8 of Isaiah 53, verse 8 to 9, which we read. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And look how he's buried. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. But why has this, all of this happened? Why is going on? Why is God being crushed? Well, let's read verse 4 to 6. Back up a little bit there, verse 4 to 6 in Isaiah 53. It gives a reason. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. No, the truth is this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, shalom, peace with God and the peace of God. And with his stripes we are healed, spiritually healed, from sin. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's not dying for himself. He's dying for you. You see, we are all sinners, aren't we? We all stand guilty and condemned before God. And the penalty of our sin is death. Romans 6 verse 23. This is what we were God. This is what is on our balance sheet. It is death. Death total. Physical death. Spiritual death. Eternal death. Everlasting death, we might say. 
We might say we are, all of us are born in this world on spiritual death row. All that awaits us when we die is eternal separation from God. And we can't pay our way out of this spiritual death row. We can't pay our way out of hell. We don't even want to. Right? But God, out of the abundance of his grace, has come to put his head on the chopping block for us. He has taken the guillotine of the cross to remove your hostility to God. This is the good news of the Bible. The good news of the Bible is that Christ is God suffering for you. And if you surrender to him, he will forgive you of your sin and give you a new life. Not just a new life. God himself will come and live in you. He will bring you into his family and give you a future into his eternal kingdom. He's done everything. You contribute nothing. What God asks is that you truly surrender to him and put your faith and trust in him. Christ is stretching his hand to you now. He's saying to you, return to me, your creator. Admit you're a sinner. Admit that you have blood on your hands. My blood on your hands. Come to me. Trusting only this, that my very blood which you shed has been shed on the cross for you. Ask God to forgive you of your sin this very moment. And he will save you. He wants to save you. He delights to save you. Are you already trusting in Jesus this morning? The answer should be, yeah, yes, sir. Right? Well, if you are, then rejoice that God in Christ has shed his precious blood for you. He has suffered for you. Beloved, do not forget just how precious your life before God is. He has saved you at such a high cost to himself. He denied himself for you. As John Flavel asks, the Puritan asks, he says, Is it not astonishing that he who from eternity had his father's smiles and honors, he that from before the world was created was adored and worshipped by angels as their God, for our sake now become, became a footstool for every miscreant to tread on. It is astonishing, isn't it? It should leave us speechless to think that God stripped himself of all robes of his glory and for what? To bring me to himself. To think that God loves you so much that on the cross for three hours he showed more love to you than he did to his precious son. He condemned his son and let you go free. You see, for those three hours, the earth was darkened. Why? Because Christ was taking on himself the infinite punishment of God you deserve. Hell wrapped into three hours. The hell you deserve. Beloved, do you need any more motivation to love God and serve him? To give up 
everything for him? Can there be any other motivation other than this? That thou, my God, should die for me, as the hymn writer says. Is it not enough that he's been crushed for your sins? And we must answer, it is enough. More than enough. More than I deserve. And maybe you are today going through a very difficult moment of your life. Beloved, do you need any more comfort in your present suffering than the knowledge of Christ crucified for you? Do you need any more comfort than this knowledge that Christ is God suffering as one of us and for you? This is your comfort. Nothing else. Be encouraged that you have in him someone who not only knows your suffering intimately, he has endured suffering for you in this world because he loves you. There has never been greater suffering than that of God in Christ for you. Why? Because no one has ever descended so low, because no one has ever come so, from so such a height as he has come. And he did it all for you. And now what God asks is that you persevere in suffering for him. That you wait patiently for him to act in whatever situation you're facing. And that you trust him that because he loves you so much. He's working his purposes in your life. You know, he's not asking you to do anything that he has not already done. The God of the Bible never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. If he's asking you to endure in suffering, it's because he endured in suffering for you. And more than that, I hope you read verse 31 to the end, didn't you? Because notice what verse 31 says. And after three days, rise again. You don't only serve a Savior who has been crushed for you. You serve a risen Savior. He has risen from the dead for you. Why is that important? Well, we don't have time to explore it this morning. But think of Daniel. Seven. Think of the Son of Man coming into the crowds of heaven. What do you think that picture was? What event in the life of Christ was that talking about? It's his ascension. After he defeats death, sin, and hell, he rides into heaven, on the clouds of heaven. He, t- he comes in as a second Adam. And if you are in Christ, you are riding in that chariot with him. You have entered heaven itself. Dust now sits on the throne of heaven. And you are sat with him, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. You have entered heaven and sat with him. So no matter what life brings, you have a wonderful life in Christ. You really do. Sometimes we forget just what a wonderful life we have in Christ. We do. But we have it. No matter what's going in our lives, we can be confident that because we can be confident because God is lovingly preserving us through this life with all his challenges and is bringing us safely into his glorious heavenly kingdom. The new heavens and the new earth. Well, may the Lord keep you in the love of Christ. And may he help you daily to rest in Christ our God, who has suffered as one of us and for us. Amen.